Joby Warwick is a serious and distinguished journalist. That doesn't appear to me to be a large cohort these days. A longtime Washington Post national security reporter and a Pulitzer Prize winner. His latest book is Redline, the unraveling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. I found it fascinating as storytelling and history. He's here with us today. Also joining the conversation, David Adesnik, FDD's Director of Research and Senior Fellow on Syria. I'm Cliff May, and I'm pleased you're here too on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, Joby, kudos. It's a marvelous book. I have a few quibbles. That's good, not bad. Our, our listeners know that a little disagreement is both edifying and entertaining. We'll, we'll pick those bones soon. First, as you know, David reviewed your book for the national interest, and it was, a, I thought, a, a fine and fair review. And he called attention to your approach, which is almost novelistic. You report what people said and thought. You tell us, as David put it, an array of uncanny stories built around formidable protagonists. And I got to say, I wondered how you did that. And I wondered, you know, I mean, are you, are you guessing what people thought? And until it occurred to me to read your notes and acknowledgements, where you pretty much explain how you knew, for example, what Miriam Al-Khatib was wearing and where her husband was in Syria when a canister of nerve gas fell out of the sky into her backyard eventually killing her. So start by just talking about how you did such granular reporting without doing what reporters did when I was a young foreign correspondent, showing up with a pen and a notebook and just asking a lot of questions. Well, thank you, Cliff, and thank you for having me. I really enjoy your podcast, and it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, but, but yeah, I think as a as a journalist, the way I've evolved is I am just in love with storytelling. I mean, I try to be humble about what I know and don't know, and certainly about uh, my ability to prescribe uh, prescriptions and policy remedies for situations that are are above my pay grade. But I do enjoy the storytelling part of it. And having been a reporter for a long time, I did start uh, as you did with the notepad in hand and trying to uh, corner people and ask ask tough questions. But Today, this it's the ability to tell stories and to get into kind of a, a very granular, very detailed account of a situation is made so much easier by the many tools we have now. And in the case, if, if the readers uh, get to, to see the story of this of this woman who is is one of the first people to die of sarin in Syria. And I was able to, to laser focus on her life and what she was doing at the time and what her reaction was, because 
I have this trove of material from the family. I've got, you know, videotaped, uh, you know, scenes of her being worked on in, in medical facilities and, and her family members talking about her and, and talking about what happened afterward. And even, you know, when she was autopsied, which becomes a, a key part of the story because she's, um, you know, her, her body still contains sarin and it becomes evidence. It is it's amazing to, to, to be able to actually see video of the autopsy. And so you can describe it and make it very real without having, unfortunately, having been there for some of those moments. Yeah, no, that was, it was all fascinating. You noticed that too, David, I, obviously, because you, you pointed that out. Uh, um, you know what? I want listeners to get a feel for the kinds of stories in your book. There were so many interesting, as David put, protagonists. I want maybe tell us just one. I thought, the, tell us Iman's story, because that's self-contained. And that's fascinating. And that really had me hooked to the point where I said, okay, I'm going to read this whole book. I'm not just going to skim through it to ask some few questions in the podcast. So the story of Eamon is the story of a previously unknown story about a spy that the CIA recruited back in the 80s, back when we were just beginning to try to figure out what exactly Syria was up to on the chemical weapons front. They were clearly doing something. What they were doing was very important because they're next door to Israel. They're uh, in a, in a, to, to have a, a major weapon of mass destruction next door to one of our allies is to stabilize for lots of reasons. So we, we did want to try to understand what was going on there. And we ended up recruiting this this fascinating individual named Eamon. Uh, I don't reveal his whole name because of security issues related to his family. But Eamon was a American trained uh, scientist who ends up going back to Syria and becomes one of their top chemical weapons experts who's working in the laboratory where sarin is made. And we, I had heard for, from various sources about how good our intelligence was going back to the 80s about what Syria was doing and what they had and where they were making it. And, and I kept asking and asking. And, and finally, I began to get little bits of the story about a scientist who was a spy for us, who was on our payroll. That's how that sort of that story began to unravel. And, and as you read, uh, you know, in, in the reading of it, it gets quite complicated and quite twisted in its own way. But it's, it's a real insight into how the CIA works and a real extraordinary insight into what Syria was doing. David, finish the story for him, because I think people should know how Eamon ended up. Um, well, well, maybe, you know, a bit like uh, Hamlet, where it's not spoiling too much to say everyone winds up dead at the end. It's the process that really makes it fascinating. But Eamon does wind up in front of a firing squad because he um, he lives a somewhat lavish lifestyle. He uh, takes advantage of Syria's rather lax polygamy laws to have a pair of feuding wives who he has to maintain separately. Uh, he also makes money off of more pedestrian forms of corruption with contracts involving his research institute. But it seems uh, the CIA was doing a good job with his bank account as well. And then um, finally, he is sort of he thinks he's caught or he is asked to an interrogation by Asaf Shaukat, uh, Bashar al-Assad's brother-in-law himself, someone who winds up dead not that long thereafter. Um, and he thinks they know everything. In fact, all they really knew at the time was that he had been arranging some bribes, which is basically par for the course. One of your privileges as a senior government official in Syria is to have a network that gives you a high net worth. Uh, but treason goes beyond that, and he decided to spill that he had given all, it all to the Americans. Uh, they gave him the privilege of letting his, his family leave the country. 
and of having what I guess is considered a more dignified form of execution in Syria. So uh, a firing squad rather than hanging. And I guess this is around, still before the invasion of Iraq, I believe. It's 2002. Um, So his story comes to an end not long before uh, a very different set of stories begin. I just got to highlight something here because this is what floored me. And maybe, I don't know if it will all readers. He gets called into this interrogation. And the interrogator says, you've been betrayed. And yes, you said you said it right. He thinks, oh my God, they know everything I've done. They know I've been working for the Americans for years. They know I've been giving over all this vital information. And so he spills everything. And the interrogator thinks, I didn't know any of that. I knew he, I mean, I knew he was sucking some bribes from some German companies he was getting chemicals from. It was he was he'd been called in to be slapped on the wrist. And the next thing you know, he's in front of a firing squad, which as you say was better than being hanged because he had been a national hero. And I just thought, I don't know if you call it empathy or what, I thought, oh my God, I can just think of getting, being executed would be bad, but thinking, oh my God, why didn't I keep my mouth shut? Why didn't I wait and see what they knew before I told them everything? That would that would have been worse to me than the execution. I Maybe that's just kind of anyhow i just have to point that out that's what floored me i put the book down i walked around the room i talked to my wife all right you see what i'm saying right never mind all right the other thing the other thing that intrigued, intrigued you a lot jovi was what was required the, the procedures the engineering the, the devices built to destroy the tons of nerve gas that later we'll get to have Assad was willing to finally give up, which was done a, a, a ship. This was a challenging and dangerous undertaking. Maybe you should just explain a little bit. I know I know we're jumping ahead. We're going to we're going to come back. But I just wanted you to talk a little bit about about that part of it. What, the, the, the device that was created. You know what I'm talking about. Well, if you can imagine within the bowels of the Pentagon in 2011, 2012, when they start to see Syria fall apart, and they know very well that within this country is a weapon of mass destruction, which is potentially vulnerable. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to, to picture a terrorist group or any number of actors taking off with, with a few gallons of sarin and, and, and wreaking havoc somewhere. So they're beginning to go through the motion of or, or the exercise of thinking, what do we do if we get this stuff? We don't really have a solution. We don't have a, a team that goes in and, and takes 1,300 tons of chemical weapons out of the country. We don't even have a, a way of destroying it. And so in within the, the Pentagon, there is a small group that looks at things like this, that thinks about chemical weapons and what to do with them and what to, how to destroy them. And they came up with a machine. And in the book, we call it the margarita machine it becomes its nickname. It's this big mess of pipes and, and pumps and it's colorful and, and you, you, you might mix your drink with it, but it's actually you destroy sarin. So this thing is made and it works great and they stick it in a warehouse and there it sits for many months until suddenly when Syria you know, makes this deal to, to give up its stockpile, it's called into action. And to skip again, and not to, to, to belabor this too much at this point, but the, uh, the amazing thing is, is when, when, they, when they're getting the chemicals out of Syria, no country in the world wants them. No, but nobody wants to suddenly receive all this, this toxic material. So the only solution that emerges is to put these machines on a boat, which is not the place to have chemical weapons, but it was the last choice. And this boat literally does rings around the Mediterranean for, for a month and a half destroying the chemicals one barrel at a time until it gets all done. 
and it gets crazy. Things almost don't work. Things break down, but somehow they managed to get the that part of the mission. Finished. And there was even a, and there was a, a realistic chance that this ship would capsize from the weight, and they hadn't calculated that quite right. And anyway, it, it, it was fascinating. All right, let's go ahead, David. Yeah. I was going to jump in and say, you know, one of the things I think Joby stresses in about the Margarita machine is that it's not common for the Pentagon to come up with major leaps forward in technology in a matter of months, right? The biggest programs, in part because they're so big, they take years, even a decade, especially like the F-35 fighter. This is a case where, thank God, we had a little extra time, but it's basically in six months that Tim Blades and his team put this together, and they've given them some pretty tough demands. They want it to be effectively portable, so it fits, you know, not portable like an iPad, but it fits in two shipping containers of a standard size, and it's pretty rugged, so you can pretty much deploy it anywhere in the world, and it wasn't intended to be on a ship, because even that was pushing the limits, but they've really created this remarkable bit of applied technology in a very short time frame. And, you know, on a different schedule or a few delays here and there, it might not have worked out. And it did. And actually, it was also by Pentagon standards, remarkably cheap. Uh, I think it's $3 million per for a half dozen of these things, which compared to what we spend on most things is pennies. I love this part of the story, because it is so counterintuitive for everything we think about with big bureaucracies. But this was the one little agency that could uh, driven by some people that and an agency uh, nobody's ever heard of. I'd never heard of this agency. I've been yeah. Fort Meade or something, I think it was. Often uh, Edgewood, Maryland, Edgewood, and uh, mostly it's all civilian run and and guys that uh, kind of troubleshooters on chemical weapon stuff. And they they said, well, we can do this. And <laughs> having not done it before, it was probably a bit of a leap, but they did manage to do it. And it's it's a it's a great for for government workers who are who are listening. I think it is is a real example of where even within you know, complicated bureaucratic, uh, you know, institutions, sometimes things can, can come together and, and, and work really well. And that was, a, that was what happened here. All right, moving a bit to policy. Uh, Obama didn't want to get involved in Syria. I remember, you know, we were at FDD, we were in touch with quite a few people in what I would call the, the secular, certainly non-Islamist resistance there. Uh, and I, Remember fairly well that you know it's this what started as part of the Arab Spring in Syria were simply peaceful protests, and Bashar al-Assad, the dynastic dictator, uh, decided he was going to show them who was boss. He wasn't going to tolerate that, and began to kill and torture. And in the end, he killed and tortured thousands and thousands of people. I don't know that most people in America or Europe understand just how, how, how cruel he was that he was beyond anything his father did. And his father did a lot. Um, and there was a belief in the state department, because I can remember people expressing it to me that, well, we don't need to do too much. There's no way Assad's going to survive. He represents the Alawite minority. He doesn't have enough troops on the ground. We don't have to do anything. Um, it's just a matter of time. And then you, you remember one point, and I don't know if this is in your book, I think it's not, um, Obama began to talk about the opposition as being former farmers or teachers or pharmacists or that sort of thing, kind of very dismissively. And um, I recall Ubay Shahbandar, who I knew, who was, who was a, an advisor and spokesman for the Free Syria Foreign Mission in Washington, 
you know, he, he said, well, that's not true. First of all, about half of the Free Syrian Army are defectors from the Assad military. And uh, the commander is a former military officer. These, these guys are good guys and they need help. And not helping them meant that they were going to be destroyed. But it also opened the door uh, for the Islamist and jihadist opposition because they were going to fight and they were going to have back support. And so the possibility of having Assad replaced by, I would say that from what I know, we were doing Skype calls with these guys who were, who were certainly sympathetic to the U.S. and didn't want to see an Islamist regime. That possibility was lost partly because Obama didn't want to be involved, didn't want to see another war. And of course, was beginning at that point. At that point, he was talking with the Iranians and the Iranians had equities. In other words, they wanted Assad to survive. I I throw this all out for you know for your comments, both of you, but I think it was a, a, a really terrible mistake and failure on the part of the Obama administration uh, not to have taken that opportunity, both to change things in a good way in Syria, but also to begin to undermine the empire that Tehran was then and is still to this day trying to build in the Middle East, going from Tehran at least all the way to the Mediterranean and beyond. It's, Joby, you might want to start, and then Ed, David, you might have some thoughts on this. A number of really great points you've raised, and, and one of them is that there was a sense that with the administration at the time in those early days, they didn't have to get involved in a military way. And one reason was because they, they really believed that Assad was going to go. They had publicly pronounced that Assad had to go, and the consensus across the region and, and looking at the intelligence agencies in Israel and other places at the time, pretty convinced that Assad's days were numbered. It, you know, Mubarak had fallen, you know, it was just inevitable. And so let's let this thing ride out. Let's put out some positive messages. But in a way, the positive messages became part of the problem, because I think Bill Burns points this out in his, his recent memoir, is that with Syria, we overpromised and under-delivered again and again for the opposition, suggesting that when we say Assad must go, it sounds like a platitude to us. To them, it meant America's got our back. America's going to make this guy leave. And and uh, Robert Ford, the ambassador at the time, is, is, is continuing to tell these groups behind the scenes, don't count on it. The cavalry is not coming. The Americans don't have an appetite for, for getting involved in the military way. But those expectations were very real. And they were certainly real surrounding the, the red line threat, this, this idea that if chemical weapons are used, we're going to come and, and we're going to do something about it. So you do see these incredible expectations build up and a administration that for a number of reasons really had no interest in, in getting involved in Syria, even in a sort of in a, with a light footprint. They just didn't want it and they uh, resisted it as long as they possibly could, which was essentially the whole time. David, you want to give a perspective? I've got questions that occur to me, but go ahead uh, if you want to. Yeah. Um, well, definitely one thing is I think in some ways from memoirs, we know, I think from Bob Gates, that, you know, there was an earlier proposal, I think, from Petraeus and Secretary of State Clinton, that they did want involvement earlier. I, I believe that was 2012. And then I think it's in the book that finally, Obama does authorize some military assistance after the red line gets crossed, but still far short of what many were hoping for. Um, I think a number of works on Syria have, have made the point that the expectations really were very high, as Joby said, that the opposition really thought Assad must go as a commitment. You know, for the those who want fewer commitments in the world, they think uh, Obama never even should have said Assad should go. 
But then what happens, America doesn't do anything. And that's a point where people on both sides seem to agree in hindsight that it accelerated the Islamist takeover, the opposition, because that was the moment when it was clear that the, uh, the more nationalist or moderate opposition, the terms are disputed, they, they have no one coming to help them. And moreover, the Gulf states that are willing to invest in it were more invested in the more reasonable parts of the opposition when they thought there was more of a chance of the U.S. taking a role. But whether the Saudis, Qataris and others, they didn't mind putting money behind more radical people once the America was out of the picture. Yeah, and I guess this is where I would... I mean, look, everything everything is clear in your book to an attentive reader, and all the history is there, and it's all accurate. I think you're overly generous. When, a, when Obama says Assad must go, I think at one point you call that a hopeful declaration. You and I and David can make hopeful declarations. The president of the U.S. doesn't make a hopeful declaration. If the president of the United States says Assad must go, that means Assad must go, and he's going to do something about it. I don't think that I don't, I think it's irresponsible for a president to say something like that and not put anything. And then he goes and then he also says this is 2012 that he's going to redline no more, no more murdering of innocent civilians with chemical weapons in flagrant violation of basic international law. That's what we're talking about here. Basic violations of international law. And as you describe it, perhaps the, the worst war crime of this century so far. It's still a young, young century. And that red line is crossed and he decides, Obama decides in the end, uh, no, I changed my mind. I'm not going to, I'm going to ask Congress. And again, this is where you're generous and it's kind of you. You know, I, I don't think he can be left let off the hook for this because the polling didn't show much support for it in the U.S. and Congress didn't want to do it because leadership, it seems to me, is you make the case that this has to be done, that this has to be punished, deterred, that we, that we the U.S., our allies, the international community, the U.N., whatever it is, cannot let such a crime stand and go unpunished and undeterred. We're going to we're going to do something. I mean, if it had been Churchill, he wouldn't have said, ah, the polling doesn't look good. If it had been FDR, I don't think he would have said the polling doesn't look good. He would have gotten out there and made the case. If it had been Reagan, you know, and Reagan said, Reagan didn't say, hopefully, Mr. Gorbachev, you'll tear down this wall one of these days, uh, maybe, and we'd be very pleased to see that happen. No, he he meant it, and he was going to put some serious pressure on. And so I think, I think that 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 was that is a serious serious failure of the of the Obama administration uh, to, to to say those two things and not and then have no backup as if it's just. You know, a guy pontificating. Uh, he's not the Pope. He 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 has divisions. I'll I'll let you both <laughs> bounce off that any way you want to. Go ahead, Joby. You start. Yeah, and and absolutely. I think this is not uh, not the glorious moment that the folks in the administration like to look back to. In my in my efforts to tell the story, I, I want to lay out the sort of the, the what the internal debate was like, and I, I think I succeeded in doing that to to the degree that. These were just, these were excruciating moments within within the White House, within the National Security Council, and and they I, I think if they had a do over, they would have they would have done uh, these things differently. At the time, they're they're looking at a number of problems. So when the big attacks happens in the 2013, the, the really terrible one that we all know about, the, the there are a number of things that are slowing down decision making. I think Obama 
legitimately wanted to strike in those first days. And there was there was a real outrage when those images of, of, of dead children and women were coming out of Syria. There was this problem of WMD intelligence. If you're going to make a case for a military invention in the Middle East, in the Middle East, you've got to make sure that you can make your case. Um, that this was definitely Assad. This was definitely Sarin. It looked pretty obvious in the beginning, but let's let's present our facts to the public. And so they tried to do that fairly quickly. There was this strange problem with this international inspection force was on the ground in in Syria at the time, and the optic of for Obama of launching a military strike when you still have UN fact finders trying to, to, to establish cause and effect was complicated. And so that slowed things down. And then, you know, as this happens, you start to get allies with cold feet. The British decide we don't have any part of this. They're supposed to be part of this strike. And then the parliament voted it down. The Germans are urging caution. So all these notes of caution are coming. And so Obama takes a decision, which what some people criticize as being cowardly. I think the administration in their internal debates thought, well, it's a no brainer. We'll go to Congress. We'll get Congress to back us. And and of course, that effort falls apart. And then you're looking at an administration that's really painted itself in a corner. It doesn't have a a way forward except to be perceived as bucking Congress and doing it on their own, which arguably they could have done, but they decided not to do. And that's so my 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 intent here was to just to, to paint a picture of just how difficult and how convoluted and how insane this moment becomes within administration that's that's looking at at, at a decision that's they know will haunt them one way or another. Uh, it, it could be a stumbling point into a conflict that they don't want to be involved in, or it could be, as it turned out, uh, a moment of indecision, which which looks bad in hindsight because the United States did not fulfill its promise, you know, a very firm commitment to do something, and, and then they're they're shirking from that from that choice. No, it's fair enough. You listen, you're under no obligation in writing this book to be judgmental on something like that, as opposed to telling the story and. And providing the, their their perspective on it as well, David, you want to say anything about that? Yeah, I want to add one point about why uh, Joby's account is a little more subversive and hard on Obama than you might see at first. And second, one a point about Obama's motivations. So first, as I point out in the review, the way that Obama and some of those around him have tried to recast the red line decision of first is to say that it was a moment of historic resistance to conventional establishment thinking that goes to war too easily in the Middle East. And, you know, I think to there's no way to find that in the story Jovi Dells. It's a story of first Obama is absolutely decided he's going to do it. Then he's surprised that Merkel's against it. Then he's even more surprised the British are against it. Then they're thinking, well, we're going to go to Congress, but we're definitely going to get permission and we're going to do this. But then they discover actually Congress has cold feet and it becomes, as Joby says in the end, the polls show there's no support. So there is definitely not a portrait here that aligns with Obama's retelling of it in his famous uh, exit interview with Jeffrey Goldberg of a heroic moment of resistance to warlike thinking. Second, on the motivations, um, you know, if we go a little bit beyond the scope of Syria, and, you know, there's only so many pages in a book, but I think, um, right, we have Libya in 2011, where Obama does go in, he does not get permission. And he even later says he sort of made a hash of it. He did nothing after the regime fell. And that's he's bruised by that. And critically, at the, at the height of his campaign against Romney for re-election, Benghazi becomes a big issue, and he's embarrassed by it. And then he, he's safe after re-election. At this point, bin Laden's also dead. So I think his calculations for what's worth risking have changed. Getting bin Laden means his sort of flank is secure on national security, and he doesn't want another Benghazi. 
And then the Iran factor in some ways is very controversial. I don't think we have any good evidence. Maybe declassifications will help. The Wall Street Journal reported that there was a letter from Obama to Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, basically suggesting we wouldn't push too hard on Assad uh, or for regime change. And, you know, that's probably the closest to a clear indication that I would say that really we tempered our response to Iran aiding and abetting mass atrocities for the benefit of a nuclear deal. No one else, of course, would want to say that. But I think it's an interesting thread and it's going to be something that uh, historians will probably parse over. Can we find a clear indication that trying to get the nuclear deal led us to go easy on Assad? I'm going to jump ahead for a second, then come back and you'll see why. So later on, President Trump did bomb. He bombed on two occasions. He did not solve this problem. He didn't worry about the polls. He didn't worry about Congress. He just did it. He did it. And Mattis was eager to, his defense secretary was was eager to, 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 to send a message as well. Again, it did not, this does not solve the problem. We'll come back to that. But I mentioned that for, the, for this reason, because here's a question I really, really don't understand. And maybe one of you do. And we knew that, and it's very clear in your book, that Assad is dropping these canisters of nerve gas, of sarin, later chlorine, and he's dropping them from helicopters and planes. So why not, as a, as a way to both send a message and make it difficult for this to continue, there's, there's a finite number, not a huge number, of helicopters and planes that the Assad regime has control of. You take those out. You will you destroy them where they're sitting in the hangars on the fields. You do that, and at least it would not be possible for quite a while for Assad to be dropping canisters of nerve gas from the sky on civilian men, women, and children, and that would save lives and send a message. Why wasn't that the plan that the Pentagon came up with, and that one of the two presidents said, "Yeah, do that." That's interesting, and because because neither administration attempted to do that. I think Trump came close to it, especially after there's a 2018 attack that takes, takes place in which uh, 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 John Bolton is, is uh, the security advisor at the time and, and pushes for a much more aggressive response, including uh, military aircraft, including command and control facilities that gets shot down or watered down. But, but um, you know, th- I think this is really what Petraeus was arguing for, General Petraeus, as far back as 2012. If you take out the Air Force, it makes it very hard for them to commit these atrocities. They'll still do horrible things. It may not be uh, the end of the regime, but it's it, it's certainly going to save some lives from from point of protecting civilians. And and I do think, and this is from, from my reporting, that the pushback again and again was this is going to be a, a step down you know the slippery slope toward a, a larger conflict they were so allergic to that possibility that they kept talking themselves out of it and pentagon assessments would show well you need this number of troops and this many planes and it'll take so long and there was a fear that something would happen and it's going to get dragged into a larger war i think what we've seen since 2017 with the turks in the north is they've essentially managed to do this in in their own way essentially creating a no-fly zone in the north you know, taking out a, mil- a Syrian military aircraft at will uh, when there's when there's an engagement, without getting involved in a, in a larger campaign. So that kind of argues the other way that it is possible or could have been possible to have some kind of, you know, split the middle military involvement that would not have involved a, a, a larger commitment force. You know that which raises this question: uh, when Putin decided he was going to come in and support Assad, another thing that Obama said. He, he say, warn Putin, 
because you're getting yourself in a quagmire, Vladimir. You don't know what you're doing. And I got to think, I've, I've followed Putin for a lot of years. He chuckled at that. He thought, you know, Barack, it may be a quagmire for you because you're an amateur. For me, it won't be a quagmire. I know what I'm trying to achieve. I have a strategy to achieve it, and I'm going to. I'm going to support Assad. I'm going to build up a, a, a base, a, a warm water port on, on the Mediterranean. I'm going to frustrate what you want. I know exactly what I'm doing. It's not a quagmire. I've got very large wellies that you don't seem to you don't seem to have. Um, but it was a, it, again. I just think. It, it, this look. I think at the end of the day, what you got to say is that that you know you 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 call this the unraveling of Syria, and it was, and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. In the end, they, America destroyed some of that arsenal, not all. Uh, the the prohibition on on on, on chemical weapons was n- was not enforced. Um, Assad has done this with, done all he did with impunity. The Russians have achieved a lot for them for, 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 for in terms of what they wanted to do. It's a victory for the Islamic Republic of Iran as well. Um, and this gets to the deal that was made that we delayed coming to the deal that when, when Obama decided he wasn't going to use force, looking for a way out, the Russians offered him one and said, yeah, We'll get uh, we'll get Assad to declare, and you can destroy all the all his uh, chemical weapons. How about that? And you've heard Kerry and Obama and uh, and Samantha Power. Um, I heard her at my daughter's graduation at the University of Pennsylvania giving a whole speech about this historic deal and how she had succeeded. And Obama said to her, "I know you can handle this." And she's wondered if I could, and she did. And the truth, of course, is not that because he didn't. Uh, we know, I think, and we know from your book, that Assad did not stop using chemical weapons. He used chlorine, and later he used sarin, which either meant he still had it or he was still producing it. We know that not until 2018 did the a laboratory where Ayman, who you just talked about before, that he had set up near Damascus, that, that was never declared. That was functioning until Trump bombed it. And so... He's gotten this. This was this deal, which is being portrayed by so many as this historic, wonderful triumph of American diplomacy, was anything but. I would argue it was very much like the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. We it was a false claim that a problem had been solved when it had when it hadn't been at all. In this case, it hadn't even the can hadn't even kicked very far down the road. The cans were still falling out of helicopters uh, into civilian neighborhoods in various rebel-held cities. Um, anyway, I, <laughs> I think it was a, a, bad, a bad deal at the end of the day, and I think the Russians were laughing at us. So I, in my book, I got to split this up a little bit, that you can accept that or, or acknowledge the fact that, that something pretty amazing did take place in terms of removing what was removed. That there was a, there never before in wartime had anyone attempted to to dismantle the entire weapons program, a weapon of mass destruction. And if the CIA estimates that ninety to ninety five percent was removed, it's great that it's out, and that getting it out was was pretty complicated and very hard. And it's we're all much better that it's that that is gone. What didn't happen, and this is the other part, is the accountability piece. Is because Assad was never never once had to acknowledge that he, he, he 
attacked his own people. He's never been held personally responsible for what he did. And that really erodes the taboo. That means that it's easier for a, a Putin to use a chemical weapon to, to attack political opponents uh, inside and outside Russia, for, for Kim Jong-un to, to do the same at an airport uh, in Malaysia. It's, it is that erosion and that lack of accountability, that's, that's what sticks with us today. So yes, celebrate the fact that we managed to get out what we did and the logistics of that were quite complicated. Uh, but also mark the fact that we did not succeed in, in really enforcing that taboo as we should have. And it's a, it's a failure also. It's a failure of the, of the UN. And by the way, the, the, you, you describe what the UN did in Syria, and it was incredibly brave and difficult to do. But it, it, it should not be lost on a reader, and, you, and, the, and a reader will not be, miss this, that the UN was there to make sure what we knew, already knew, which is that chemical weapons were used, but was not allowed to affix blame. In any way, I but I, I mean I understand that. Although the, the blame becomes pretty obvious, the rebels didn't have helicopters to just to, to drop these canisters. But nonetheless, it's a, a failure of the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons, which got a Pulitzer uh, Nobel Peace Prize for this. I think a failure of the Europeans who just didn't want to be bothered with it. Um, and of course, uh, point out too that since then Russia has used, and you can you point this out too. You point this out. Russia has used chemical weapons on a more targeted basis against dissidents uh, or those they consider to be traitors, both at home and abroad. What all this says is that the prohibition, the civilizing prohibition that, that even in the worst of wars, we don't use chemical weapons. It's been violated with impunity and doesn't really hold. And, you know, the U.S. is not going to do it, but the bad guys will as much as they want because there's no price to be paid. And if I could raise sorry, the, the additional point is that it's, it's a combination of this brazenness in using the weapons combined with a, a, a really sophisticated disinformation campaign, maybe not sophisticated as much as just persistent, because you see that beginning to develop in Syria with chemical weapons attacks. The Russians come out and say, no, they didn't. This was with the rebels. It wasn't wasn't Assad at all. And and that becomes the the mo from from there on out. You know, when when uh, Alexei Navalny is is attacked with with a with a nerve agent, it wasn't us. It was it was the Germans. It was someone else. It, and and you see this really well organized, you know, just incredibly powerful, uh, you know, disinformation campaign that accompanies the bad behavior. And so you can't even penetrate this within great populations of, of segments of the population because it. You're, you know, in my own experience, you know, my 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 Twitter account fills up with with messages from people who really believe that uh, Assad's been the good guy in this, and those the rebels are wrong. So it's it's it really, I think, a lot of this has come out of this conflict, and we're still dealing with it. Yeah. The, oh, the first thing I was just going to add is, to the extent I think that the OPCW and the the JIM, which is sort of a joint OPCW UN mission had a lot of limitations, the Russian veto is a big factor there. And for a different range of UN organizations, some have been much more complicit with Assad. Uh, sadly, the World Health Organization is one of the most in terms of vaccine issues, in terms of I, currently with COVID, really failing to challenge uh, a cover-up. But I think in that case, those those organizations really were hemmed in a lot by the Russian veto because they had, they had to respond to the mandate um, they were given. Uh, one question I actually had reading the book, and it's really the kind of sort of fine print kind of thing, is 
you know, obviously we start with the story of Eamon and, you know, we, we, no one, I guess, in the public had known before about this. He's obviously given us a really remarkable inside look down to specific facilities. And what I was trying to figure out is precisely when did the U.S. know that Assad was keeping back a reserve or keeping facilities? Um, because in I, I know from previous reporting, I think I mentioned this in the review, I guess it was around 2015 that there was a big expose. But it seemed to me that actually from, I guess, the very first, from the moment we started the deal and Assad made his first declaration, we would have known that he was keeping things back. And is that something that that it emerges very clearly or is it a murkier issue? It's it's murky to the extent that the Syrians have some very convoluted accounting for some of the things that, that, that they did and, and what happens to, to some of their material. And I do get into some of this in the book. The CIA has a pretty good sense of what, what Assad has. And when the first declarations come in from the Syrians, you know, kind of a list of all their facilities and the quantities, the CIA is able to push back and say, oh, no, 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 we think you have more than that. And they had to amend and adjust and they kept reporting more until they got to a point where they felt like the, the, the agency felt it had gotten as much of a story, you know, a complete account from the Syrians as they were going to get, understanding that they were probably going to be squirreling some things away in ways that were hidden. What got really hard later on was that the Syrians, through these long processes and negotiations with, with OPCW, kept saying that, well, we had this, but we destroyed it. We had X amount of mustard, but uh, we didn't ever build artillery shells for it, which really made no sense. And so they would you know, present their 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 evidence or, or sometimes no evidence, but a case that the stuff had been destroyed, but they could never back up those stories. So a lot of it ended up being you know, sort of in the fog, they, the Syrians would claim that because they're at war, they couldn't, that the, the record, record keeping was incomplete and they lost track of things. And so that's that really made it a, a murky picture. The one thing is for sure is that all the questions remain unanswered. Every single issue the OPCW raised with the Syrians about how much did you really have? How much did you really destroy? None of those files have ever been closed. So those are open questions. We really don't know where a lot of this stuff went ultimately. Amon's laboratory, the the Sears, CERS, which we say, um, since the CIA absolutely knew what was there because they had a spy, since that spy had already been executed, why didn't the U.S. say among this list of declarations, you're leaving out a very important military laboratory that we know had come, it was involved in chemical weapons research uh, near Damascus. So uh, you better put it on the list. And also, we're we're sorry to see you're lying to us. It was extraordinary that the laboratory facilities were given a pass uh, in the first round. These were not production. They were not sort of uh, stockpile, you know, bunkers. They were, but they were important. And when if you're doing your, your original research there, they certainly should have been on the list. And later on, you see the OPCW gets access to some of these places, and they begin taking their forensic samples, and they come away finding things that the Syrians had never admitted to, including variations of VX that, that the Syrians never copped up to making, and a whole other you know, types of chemical weapons that had never been disclosed in any report. And so the, the labs become uh, an extremely important cause of concern for the OPCW and the United States. It's not really surprising to me that uh, in 2018, Trump decided to target SERS specifically to target the lab uh, for that round of military strikes. And that that one facility does not exist anymore. 
I'll say one thing to add there is, of course, if the Syrians keep stonewalling or giving false information, if you've already made it absolutely clear that you won't enforce your red line, at some point, they know they don't have to give in. I mean, clearly they gave in, as Joby documents in the book, bits and pieces, but at some level, they aren't being pushed. And then on the other side, there's probably some level where the administration doesn't want to push too far and have it become public that this was a 90% deal and not an 100% deal, right? So Kerry went out there very publicly and said, we got 100% of the weapons. Other statements basically said as much without saying, giving the number 100. But if you push too far and don't get answers, you can both have it out there that you didn't get them all and you're not willing to use force to deal with the problem. Um, so, you you know, it kicks it down the road. Right. I got one other quibble with you. It's just it's one sentence, but let me raise it. You say at one point that the chemical weapons were Syria's main strategic deterrent against arch rival Israel. And my problem with that is, first of all, Syria didn't need a strategic deterrent against Israel. Israel needs strategic deterrence against Syria because Syria is dedicated to wiping Israel off the map. Israel is not twice Syria attacked. Israel, 67 and 73. Certainly in 73, the Israelis had wanted to take Damascus. They could have done so. Uh, they were outnumbered in terms of tanks in the Golan Heights, hugely, but they prevailed. Um, but I don't see how chemical weapons are deterrent against Israel doing what? Israel didn't, Israel's never wanted to go to war with Syria. And to call, I think it's odd to call Israel Syria, Syria's arch rival. They're not rivals for anything. Uh, Israel is not competing with Syria in any way. Israel is trying as best it can through the Abraham Accords is doing better to make peace with all its, of its neighbors. It doesn't, I mean, you can argue, I think it's actually also wrong to say that Iran and Saudi Arabia are rivals. I, that's another discussion, but people say it all the time. And I see the, I see why they say it, but I don't think Israel, I don't see Syria and Israel as rivals. I think a lot of this is from from the, from Syria's own optic that that uh, they they know they're next door to a country that's much more powerful than they are. They 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 are not rivals so much as as, as enemies, I suppose. Uh, that, that that there's a lot of bitter feelings among among not just the, the leadership but some many Syrian people who very clearly remember the last time they had a tangle with with Israel and it didn't work out very well for them. And so you have this next door neighbor with a nuclear stockpile. Well, what's our answer to that? And almost for their own internal consumption or to make themselves uh, feel better about themselves, perhaps, is, well, we've got this counterbalance. We've got chemical weapons on warheads and we can send these into serious to Israeli cities as as retaliation. And it's it's really not much of a matchup, but it's the best they had. And that's one reason that I, I can still argue that 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 forcing Syria, a country that never even acknowledged having this arsenal, to to admit to it and then allow people from other countries to come in and kick open the cupboards and look around was was quite a, a lot for the, the Syrians to swallow. It never would have happened if if there had not been this excruciating moment when the Russians really did believe an attack was coming and, and went to Assad and said, look, if you want to stick around or if you want us to be around, you need to, to admit to these things and get rid of them. And um, and so while it was not a complete destruction uh, by any means, it was a tough. It was a tough uh, pill for the for the Syrians to swallow. I argue. Right. Yeah, it's worth pointing out here and just discussing for a moment or two. Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian head of the Quds Force, because he was he is he was and it comes through in clearly in your book. He was clearly uh, 
engaged, involved, masterminding. I guess he was a mastermind behind many of the crimes committed in Syria. Um, and uh, and again, he, he was the only one in the, in the, at the end of the day, I guess, who has been held to account, and perhaps not for those crimes so much as for his other transgressions, not least the, the deaths of hundreds of Americans in Iraq for which he was responsible. But maybe just, again, to go long, but talk a little bit, either one of you, Joby, start on, on, on Qasem Soleimani's role, because he was, I mean, I think of him as evil, but really, but, but brilliant. What he was able to do strategically there, very few other terrorist generals would be able to accomplish. So do you think that's, is that going too far? No, absolutely right. I think Assad would not have survived. And as we, we said earlier, there was expectations that he wouldn't survive. But he had two important allies, unlike the Libyans, unlike the Egyptians, everyone else involved in these, these uprisings. Assad had the back of Iran and Russia, and both those countries were extremely committed to his survival. With Iranians coming in with their, their most important strategic thinker, making sure that the Assad regime survived and bringing in Hezbollah, bringing in eventually Iranian troops on the ground, uh, unbelievable amounts of money, treasure, oil, everything else, to make sure this guy survived. So they had this investment that they intended to make sure was you know, stood. And the Russians, you know, Soleimani becomes part of going to Moscow in 2015 when when the CIA trained forces are starting to have an effect and, 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 and cities are starting to fall to the rebels. Going to, to Moscow and telling uh, Putin and his generals, you need to really get some more skin in the game. You need to get your Air Force down here and help us out. And that becomes a turning point in, in this, this whole conflict, because from 2015 on, there's no question the war is over, that this side is going to prevail because Russia has committed militarily in a way that no other Western country certainly was able to do. And, and, and that becomes, you know, decisive. And, and I think it's... Most of the Russian commitment is air power, right? The Russians, as far as we know, as far as you know, haven't lost a lot of troops in uh, Syria. They've lost some, I'm sure. I, I really I'm impressed by the extent to which the Russians learn from us in this kind of conflict. This is a, a new kind of involvement for them, but in, in a way they they pattern it after our own uh, you know efforts in 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 you know 2014 2015 in Iraq and and Syria a very light footprint you know the use of air power and and uh, special operators intelligence. And Russia simply essentially replicates that. And so they don't have a lot of, of, of casualties, but they're able to, to, to have a force multiplier. They're able to get a lot done on the ground because uh, they have just the right mix of, of resources to help the Syrians prevail. Yeah, I think there's actually a perfect opportunity, Cliff, to go back to your point, which I wanted to expand on before, about how Putin didn't listen when Obama said, this is going to be your quagmire because he knew better. And right, so in a way, Soleimani is the one to figure that out first, because what he has done is he's not bringing IRGC, Iranian Revolutionary Guards, in to do most of the fighting. They do some, they do a little dying. He, first, he brings Hezbollah, uh, Lebanese Hezbollah in, and they're going to take very heavy casualties. And then he starts improvising further. He brings in Iraqi Shiites and he brings in Afghan Shiites. Many of them are actually illegal or undocumented migrants in Iran itself with precarious status who through the promise of whether regularized status or other things, or just the, they're desperate for money. So for several hundred dollars a month, they'll go and risk their life in Syria. So Soleimani puts together a force that's effective enough, albeit low end, to start getting his work done for him. And Putin effectively can piggyback on this. He has Soleimani's force of Iranians and these other Shiite groups. And I think Jovi is very right. There's an important parallel here. The US applied that same lesson in fighting the Islamic State. 
Um, it comes from the frustrations in Iraq and Afghanistan of having, you know, 100, 150,000 troops. And the old saying at the Pentagon is we have to fight by, with, and through our allies. And um, Soleimani gets this right, Putin gets this right, and then we get this right. And that's why in Syria right now, we, you know, even after several years, uh, there's been only, thankfully, a handful of killed in action among American troops, while amazingly, the Kurds and the Arabs who have fought with us have taken, by their account, over 11,000 fatalities and 28,000 wounded. So in a way, this is a key strategic development for us. And in a way, Soleimani was there first. Of course, his addition beyond that is the atrocities, the deliberate terrorizing of the population. Let's remember the Obama administration sanctioned him personally for human rights violations he committed in Syria on Assad's behalf. So that part of it is not part of the analogy. But in terms of the underlying tactical logic of putting together a force of partners to do the main fighting so your troops don't is a key innovation that he brought to Syria. Two topics I just want to touch on before we before we bring this to an end. One is I think we just need to mention what's become of Syria. I don't I think we I think we have to. I mean, it's been eleven years of war and counting, at least a half million dead, probably half the country displaced either at home or abroad or homeless. Refugees have been flooding Europe. A generation of children left uneducated, probably ripe for radicalization by Islamists. Uh, who can say with some justification, you see the nations of the West, they don't care about you. Um, this is, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I just, uh, and, uh, I don't think people understand. And I, I know, David, you certainly concentrated on this and written about this. And there are other people who are trying understand the, the extent and the depth of the, of the horror, the tragedy, the atrocities uh, that 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 have taken place in Syria and are still taking place, and this the unbelievable damage that's been done um, in this case. And I'm not trying to blame the Obama administration or the Trump administration, which failed as well, for this. But really, the West, the international community, the UN, the uh, responsibility to protect all all of that just blows away with the wind. Am I am I wrong about any of that, uh, Joby? I think you're absolutely right. And and it's we have Syria fatigue, even though we haven't been involved militarily in a significant way. I mean, we've certainly had a role, but in terms of large commitments of troops and people in this country don't want to think about Syria. It's too depressing to think about. But this is a, a crisis that has brought so many global problems to us, and, and not to least of which is the, you know, the resurgence of this group we call the Islamic State, which was able to use Syria as a magnet for tens of thousands of foreign fighters to come into this country to get trained, to get radicalized. Many of them went back home. Some of them are still in Syria. We have a failed state. We have whole parts of Syria that have not been rebuilt. There's no plan for rebuilding them. So you have generations of children growing up in desperation and they're ripe for radicalization. And then just the, the rest of refugee crisis. I mean, I, I traveled to Jordan frequently when, when we were able to. And, and at one point, something like a, a fifth of Jordan's population was Syrian refugees, a country that really can't you know, properly provide water and, and electricity to its own citizens. And so the scale of the problem and the the the, the, repli- the so the the rink the ripple effect and how it's affected you know so many parts of the region and our own countries, it just can't be under understated. It, it's a truly international crisis. David, your thoughts on this? Yeah, um, it's been a major failure in a way. Uh, the UN Security Council is permanently hamstrung 
because Russia will protect Syria from really any sort of uh, consequences and China will back them up. Um, and of course, there's no will either in the US or elsewhere to use force. So a lot of what I've been trying to do is focus on a couple measures that I hope uh, can bring uh, some alleviation of suffering without obviously resorting uh, to those things. So one that is slightly more controversial is, of course, sanctions, the Caesar sanctions that have strong support in the U.S. And there's an ongoing debate. I, I'll argue that sanctions take resources away from Assad, reduce his ability to commit atrocities. And others say, no, no, you know, no Syrian civilian should have to pay any more of a price. But then the second sort of uh, prong that I'm pursuing is one where I hope you can have uh, humanitarians and human rights activists and all others who are opposed to Assad unite. And that is reforming the UN aid process, that tens of billions have gone in aid. The U.S. has given 12 billion, not all of it to areas under Assad's control, but Assad has so thoroughly co-opted uh, the UN aid agencies that he can basically send aid to his preferred people that may not even need it and deprive it. So the worst was when he deprived besieged civilians. Basically, he committed a war crime and the, U the UN abetted that war crime by having its trucks drive through areas of starvation on their way to deliver the food elsewhere. And I'm trying to push to have the new administration take a role in this at the UN and say, let's do better. Let's put real safeguards on this aid so it doesn't happen. And I think COVID is an interesting example. So, you know, we, we've had the horror of COVID in our own country. Imagine doing it in a war-torn country with a devastated system where the government is actively concealing everything that's happening. And, you know, you have no idea how many people are sick or dying or where. Um, healthcare is doled out on a politicized basis, or if you can bribe the right people to get a canister of oxygen or a bed in a hospital. Um, the U.S. has pledged $4 billion to send vaccines to poorer countries. And what I'm pursuing is one of them is Syria and actually North Korea as well. Are we going to make sure that those vaccines don't become something Assad or his people can sell on the black market to raise money for themselves? We're going to make sure they aren't only given out to Ba'ath Party members and not people in other areas. Um, and I think this is something important to pursue. There are these, as much as we can be so frustrated and fatigued, there are still huge challenges where if we don't take important policy steps, there will be even worse suffering in Syria. And if we take the right ones, we really can prevent some terrible things from happening, even without putting a single pair of boots on the ground. So that, that's where my uh, sort of policy work is oriented. Uh, very important. I guess so. I guess on with this, Joby, in, in terms of the policies or lessons you think the current administration you know, Jake Sullivan, Tony Blinken, maybe they're in their car listening to this. You never know. Uh, they should all read your book, first of all. Absolutely should read your book. But what are the other lessons that they should draw from the failures of both the Trump and the Obama administration in Syria and perhaps in the broader Middle East? I'll just mention one for myself, and I absolutely agree with what, everything David has said um, in, in terms of the the, the problem with, with delivering aid and 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 and, and making sure that uh, the material gets to the right people. But the problem of accountability it, it might seem inconsequential, but it's it's really not. There are efforts underway now in courts in Europe, also at the uh, OPCW has a fact-finding body now that is naming names. It's 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 identifying culprits in a way that that these international organizations rarely do, you one has to to be, continue to press the, the point that there has to be accountability. And if the Assad family can eventually be held to account uh, in some kind of judicial process, then I think that that gives hope, but it also enforces 
the 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 norms that we should be enforcing as 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 a world community. And without the kind of accountability, then I think that that so much of this uh, this suffering is just just looks, uh, you know, without any kind of you know justice, without any kind of uh, you know hope for these people of seeing something set right. So I do hope, and I think they are. I do hope that they're they're paying attention to this accountability part of it. Just, um, just curious to know, and you may not. After this huge project that you've completed, I know you got to spend time talking about the book. And do you know what your next project is? Are you going to continue to follow Syria um, over the months and years ahead? What do you have on, on plan? Oh, one of the things I'm looking at is is it really relates to the breakdown and and, the, and these norms because there there is some very concerning uh, research that's underway on chemical and biological weapons. Uh, by by some of our <laughs> adversaries, shall we say, and I and I'm trying to shine a bit of light on that. Uh, beyond that, I you know I'm <laughs> always kind of allow myself to have a little time of just maybe just being a normal reporter and not thinking about the big projects. There's there's so much going on with Iran, um, with uh, with North Korea. Uh, there's going to be a time of testing, I think, for the new administration. So I want to try to be on top of that as well. Well, again, I'm I'm glad you you'll be doing you'll be doing both. Uh, I, again, I have nothing but admiration for your repertorial skills and for the for the history you've gotten down on paper. I think you've done a fantastic job. And I'm, and really, I want to thank you for being with us today and, and talking with us about this. Um, thank you to David. Uh, I think it was great to have you in, in this conversation. And um, this, you know, Syria is not going away. It's a problem anytime in the next few months, years, maybe generations at this point. So we'll have to, we'll continue to follow it. Again, thank you again. And thanks to all of you out there listening here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.